Well, good morning. I'm uh, Rick Ivey. I'm the senior pastor. If you're visiting with us, we're glad that you're here. And um, we are starting a brand new sermon series today called Made for More. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at the reality that as a people of God, as a people who have received Christ, as our journeying together with God, that we are made for more. And when I talk about being made for more, I'm not saying that um, we are made for more work or that we're made for more routine or anything like that. But as people who are children of God, who have been claimed by Christ, that there are great and mighty things that we as a people and individually are called to do. And so that's what we're going to be looking at in the upcoming weeks. And today we are talking about something that is central and crucial uh, to us as a people And it's also one of the greatest ways, if not the greatest way, for us to achieve what it is that God desires for us, and that is to know God. And specifically what I'm talking about is our our worship. Now, when you think of worship, probably a number of things come to mind. Uh, When you think about worship, you may have images or thoughts about uh, what it means to worship, uh, what it looks like. But um, Jesus gave us some really wonderful instruction Uh, when it came to worship, uh, just think about for a moment the prayer that we say each and every week as a church. When we gather together in our worship time here and in our other services, something that always happens is that we say the Lord's Prayer. Have you thought about the Lord's Prayer in a while? Usually we just kind of mouth the words and don't pay a whole lot of attention, but if we slow down for just a moment and, and look at that prayer, it gives us some beautiful, beautiful thoughts and some, some wonderful encouragement. Jesus, when he teaches his disciples to pray, he doesn't say just to address who it may concern, right? That's not how the Lord's Prayer begins. He doesn't say whoever's out there. Instead, he says, what? Our Father in heaven. He's saying that there's a specific God that we are praying to. There's a God that loves us and cares for us, that's like a father to us, that has our best interest at heart, that loves us like we're his children. Hallowed be thy name. The last time he used hallowed was probably Halloween. But what is it saying? He's saying, we want your name to be sacred. We want your name to be cherished. We want your name to be holy, that we don't just use it like a household item, but instead that there's a reverence to it. There's a significance to your name. And then we pray, we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what are we praying? We're saying we want God's way of doing things. We want to see God's creation, the kingdom of God to be part of our world, to inbreak, to move into our world and to be uh, as it is in heaven. When you think about God's will getting done, when God's will is being achieved, um, you know, how does that happen? What is it like when God wants something to be done in heaven? It gets done, right? God's will getting done in heaven, pretty good track record. And we're saying we want that to happen in our lives as well, that we want to see God's will at work in our world. God doesn't desire for us to be at war. God doesn't desire for us to see places of great poverty or violence or hatred. But we, we're, so we pray and we say we want your will to be just like it is in heaven, to be here and to be at work in our lives. Give us this day our daily bread. You know, we recognize, we say we're human, that we have needs, we need to eat. We need more than that. We need our provisions. 
And we say that we expect and we look for God to help us to have those things. And we say, give us this day our daily bread. We're not saying we need enough to last us through the zombie apocalypse. We're saying we just need it for today because you're going to be there tomorrow, God. You're going to take care of us. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive the trespasses of others. We're Methodists. We use trespass. Other denominations, debtors, sins, impositions, right? We're saying that if God will do that for us, we'll do the same thing for others. And then we get into a part that's usually kind of tricky for people. We say what? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation because... You and I are people that are tempted. And then the last part of that, you know, deliver us from evil. We have to go back to that childhood way of looking at God and believing in God and saying, He's the one that protects our lives, that watches over us. And then ultimately, when we get to the end of the prayer, we're saying, for thine is the, the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. And we're saying that, that God, your world, your kingdom, all it is, it belongs to you. All the power in the world, no matter how much we think we have or achieve, it all belongs to you. All the glory we can't take from you, it all belongs to you. And then we say that final word, amen, that we agree. And if we've successfully said the prayer, if we've thought about the meaning of that, it should bring joy to our life to know that we have a, a God in heaven that loves us like a father loves his child that He's the one that provides for us, that protects us, that leads us out of temptation, that delivers us from evil, and that He's all-powerful and almighty, and that His will is going to be done. And if we, we, we experience that, if we know that, if we hold that to be true, then more than amen, we should be thinking something like, yay, hallelujah, God's good, right? Should do that for us. If it doesn't, you really need to reconsider this whole thing that you're doing, right? You know, that, that should really inspire and help you. And, and that's worship, to think about God's goodness and to give Him credit that He deserves, to say, God, you are all-powerful and you've done all the great things in our life. You have amazed us. And so we celebrate you and we, we rejoice in you. And we come to worship, we do that in a number of different ways. We sing, we pray, we hear God's Word. We welcome each other. And I was thinking about it today. I was like, are even the announcements part of worship? You know? I mean, at least we're saying we believe that God is going to give us another week when we do announcements. Okay, that's pretty weak, but we'll go, we'll go with that. <laughs> but that's, that's worship, right? You know, to, to acknowledge God and to give Him credit for what He has done for us and what He will do. That, that's what it all comes down to. Now, you may say, well, what's the big deal? Well, here it is. We all worship something. We all worship something. Even the people that didn't show up today to worship God, they, they worship something, right? It could be money. It could be comfort. It could be luxury. It could be success. It could be fame. It could be uh, knowledge of security. I mean, anything like that is, is something that can cause us to worship it. And worship very basically means that we give worth to it, that we value it, that we say, this is really important. We all worship something. We also always serve somebody. We're always being mastered by something. We're always a disciple of something. 
Old Bob Dylan song, you got to serve somebody, right? And so when we talk about those realities, you can begin to see and to understand why us coming together and, and worshiping God is so important. Because if we lose that perspective, if we uh, take our eyes off of what God is doing in the world for just a, a moment or two, we drift off and we begin to worship other things, things that won't fulfill us, things that won't save us or heal us, but instead destroy us. And so to, to look at that reality for a little bit further, I want to uh, encourage you, if you've got your Bible, to turn to the end of the book of Exodus. I'll be in Exodus uh, chapter 40. And this is the very end part of the story of Exodus, very famous story, Prince of Egypt, Ten Commandments, all those other movies that have been made uh, about the Exodus. And um, we are looking at the very end. And when, if you were beginning to say, you know, if you start off with the, the story at the beginning of the Exodus and, and looked at it and said, well, what's the end result? What's going to be the finished product? What's going to be the, the climax? What's going to be the, the high point of the whole story? Um, not many of us at the beginning of it would say, this is what it would look like. And yet, here we are at the end of the story of Exodus, and here's the result. Um, and it says very clearly in, in Exodus chapter 40, verse 33, when Moses had finished all the work, the cloud covering the meeting tent and the Lord's glorious presence filled the dwelling, Moses couldn't enter the meeting tent because the cloud had settled on it, and the Lord's glorious presence filled the dwelling. Whenever the cloud rose from the dwelling, the Israelites would set out on their journeys. But if the cloud didn't rise, then they didn't set out until the day it rose. The Lord's cloud stayed over the dwelling during the day with the lighting in it at night, clearly visible to the whole household of Israel at every stage of their journey. So that's the end result. And, and what do the people of Israel have? I mean, what is this great gift? It's that they can very clearly see that God is present not only in their world, but in their lives. You know, the vision that's there is that this tent of meeting, this tabernacle is filled with the glory of God, that it's visible, that they can see it by cloud and by pillar of fire, that God is there. You know, it's a holy place when the tabernacle is assembled, when the meeting comes together, and it's so holy and God is so present that even Moses can't enter into it, you know? that it's so powerful and so great that they're able to say and see, this is our God. This is the one that delivered us. This is the one that brought us out of slavery. This is the one that's not only done that, but the one that's going to lead us into the promised land. I mean, think about how valuable that would be, you know, to have the, the reality of God's presence there in front of an entire people constantly. And this is what it leads them, this is what guides them, this is what assures them that God is present. I mean, it's such a beautiful image of, of what it might be like when God's glory and presence fills our places of worship, fills our church, fills our communities. It's so pretty, it's so beautiful to think about what that would be like. And it's fascinating to me, uh, if you read around this particular scripture, read right before it, all of the work that goes into assembling the tent of meeting and the tabernacle, it has this long list of materials that are there that are required, all the cloth, all the skins, all the jewels, all the stones, and there's a specific process that they follow. And then ultimately it gets to that last part where it says, you know, all the work was done and God's glory filled the place. 
Now, it's a beautiful image. And if you read through the entire book of Exodus, which I hope you do sometime, what you come to the conclusion very quickly is, that really should not have happened. Every point along the way, things could have gone so differently. And yet, ultimately, it ends with God being present for His people, and this is the God that's going to lead them into the promised land. In fact, probably one of the most pivotal points in the book is this. And uh, around chapter 33, there's this incident that happens with the golden calf. You all know the golden calf story, right? Moses goes up on the mountain to receive God's word. He was worshiping. And down below, the people of Israel uh, decide to take their gold earrings, gold teeth, the gold rims off their car, melt it all down, and make the golden calf, right? And not only do they make the golden calf, but they begin to act in a very, uh, let's say, irreligious manner, right? And uh, it all goes horribly. It gets so bad that Moses is like, let's just go through and get rid of some of these people. You know, this thing, things have gone so badly. Let's just go through and get rid of some of these people. And then God says, I'm done. I mean, seriously, you can go back and read it. God says, look, you can have all those things that I promised you and all the things that you want, but I'm not going with you. Okay? God says to them very clearly, he says, I'm going to make sure that you have all the crops you need, all the, the materials you need. You're going to get three-hour delivery on anything you want from Amazon. It's all going to go really well for you. All right? He says, you know, you can have anything you want. All the things, all the hopes and desires that you have about this world, they're all going to come true, but I am not going with you. And one of the most pivotal moments in the whole story, and not to give too much credit to Moses, but Moses says, that's not going to do it. I mean, think about that. Moses turns to God and he says, if we can't have you, I don't want to go any farther. If we can't be with you, I don't want the rest of that stuff. I mean, do you recognize how faithful Moses was in that moment? Seriously, if you think about your own life, if you were guaranteed, you could have billions in the bank. You could buy and sell whatever you wanted to. Not only that, but your family was going to prosper. Your great-great-great-grandchildren were never going to want for anything. They were going to be healthy beyond measure. They were going to thrive. They were going to be wonderful. But at the end of the day, you wouldn't have God. What would be your choice? Now, nine out of ten American consumers, I can tell you what their answer is. But do you see the beauty and the wonder in the moment that Moses says, no, I've had a taste. I have seen your glory. And I'm not going anywhere if you won't go with me. And God agrees. He says, I, I will go with you. And that's where you get to the end of the chapter. They've got the tent of meeting. God's going to go with his people. And even if Moses doesn't get to make the rest of the trip, God goes with his people and is present in their lives. Now, when you think about your worship and the way that you come together as a people, is that your one desire, to know God? Do you recognize that you were made for more than just having things or stuff in this world? That you were made to know God to know God in the way that Moses did? Do you, do you recognize that? Do you, when you come together and you, you sing, and when you pray, 
Are you searching for God? Are you begging God? Are you asking God to be present in your life in the way that God was present that day in the desert? Now, of course, the beauty and the wonder of the the people that we are is that in Jesus Christ, we have the one who told us that He would go with us, that He would be present in our lives each and every moment. To know God, to have Him close to our hearts and our lives should be central to who we are. Now, the question that many times gets brought up is that, well, why do we need to worship together? Why do we need to come together to worship God and to to seek that to be the case for our lives? So oftentimes you hear people say that, you know, they worship God God better on the deer stand or at the beach, right? Uh, or they'll say that, you know, it's, it's more meaningful for them to, to see a rainbow than to be in worship. And I get that, you know. I'm not, a, I'm not against, you know, having individual times of worship. And I can, I can consumer it on up. Man, I can, I can go online and I can find my favorite preacher, right? I can find the music that I like. And not only is it the music that I like, but there's no human error, The recording process has gotten rid of any mistakes. They have auto-tune to make sure it's right on pitch. And I can enjoy all that from my house, right, with a cup of coffee in my jammies if I want to. But I come to worship and I, I come to be with people because first off, I need to see other folks are doing what I'm doing. It's important to me to know that I'm not the only one that's trying to live a Christian life in a pagan culture. It's important for me to see that. Secondly, worship is something that leads me to do something that I wouldn't do on my own. Just a bit of self-disclosure. About a month ago, I paid the money to join a uh, gym and started doing an exercise class, okay? And I, I won't make it a commercial for where I work out because results may vary, right? Right, so. Uh, <laughs> But I wanted to go and do that, and it's a class, which means I have a coach, and then there's other people that are, are sweating with me at about five in the morning, all right? And I came home one day, and I shared with my wife, you know, she said, how'd it go? I said, it was good. What did you do? She said, I ran two miles. And she kind of looked at me like, you ran two miles. And she kind of smirked. She's like, you, you could have run around the neighborhood for free. Why do we pay for you to go to class, you know? And I said, well, it's not a matter of would I? I mean, it's not a matter of could I do these things, it's a matter of would I do them? Because if I was left to my own devices, left at home, and somebody said, it's time to run two miles, I would say, no, I think two cups of coffee in the news sound way better than running around my neighborhood. And the weird looks that I get, like why is the six foot four preacher running around my house, right? And when we talk about worship, it's the same thing that we have worship leaders, we have pastors, and, and each and every part of our time together is, is led and planned and guided, and we're doing our absolute best to take you to places that you wouldn't normally go on your own, to lead you to God. And so that's why we come together, that and so many more reasons. But when you think about all those things, I, I just encourage you to make a commitment today to say, I, I really need time each week where I focus in and I say, there's nothing of greater value, there's nothing of greater worth than God in my life. 
I may gain success, I might gain fame, but if God doesn't go with me, then I don't want it. Make that commitment. And make a commitment as a church that you're going to be here each and every week unless you are sick or out of town. There's discouraging statistics that say that the average person, the average evangelical, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing, you know, Christian, only goes to church about once a month. Can you imagine showing up to a workplace and having one in four people present that are supposed to do the work? How would your football team do if only one out of four athletes showed up? Over and over again, you know, it's so important that we make our worship a priority, that we make our commitment to be here, and that we look to God and we say, we want your presence. We want to see you dwelling within our lives, and we need you to go out with us into the world to be the light and the salt of the earth. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, we confess that there are so many other things that we think are valuable or of greater worth than you. We tend to trust in the practical or the things that we can touch and see so easily. And so it's easy for us to begin to worship money or success or achievement or luxury or, or whatever it might be. So Lord, we need you. We need you to shine within our lives. Show us the beauty and the glory and the wonder of Jesus Christ. Help us to see all the sovereignty and the righteousness that he possessed so that when we look at this world, we, we recognize it for what it is, good but not ultimate, beautiful but not eternal. And all these things we pray and ask in Jesus' most blessed name. Amen.